What a joy to be with you guys. You are a good-looking crew. Guys in the chapel, you're good-looking. I peeked in and I saw you. I'm saying it truthfully. I can see all of you who are watching us online, too. I've got supernatural powers. I can see all of you. Some of you need to wake up. Some of your pajamas look pretty ragged. You need to get some new ones. I'm really glad that we get to worship together today, whether you're in person or whether you're online. If we've not had a chance to meet, my name's Merle. A joy to serve as lead pastor here. We're here to celebrate a great God. Yes? We're celebrating a great God. We invite you to celebrate with us. If we can help you in any way at all, whether you're in the building here, in the worship center, if you'll come back to the very back of the worship center next to the center door, if you've got some folks in that welcome area that would love to answer any kind of questions to pray with you, if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, if you're ready to take that step, we want to help you with that. In the chapel, we've got some staff members there online. If you'll just go to Pleasant Valley dot org slash connect fill out the communication card we will be in touch with you soon are there some things in your life that uh, have been passed down to you that are very meaningful and i'm not talking about you know you parents passed away and you got all their junk i'm not talking about that was that indelicate i didn't mean that <laughs> I didn't mean that indelicate in any kind of way. My parents did a great job. They got rid of everything, and I didn't get a chance to even ask for anything. They just said, hey, we don't want to burden you children with it. But maybe it's something that isn't necessarily tangible. Maybe you have a love for golf, and that's been passed down through the generations of your family. Or maybe you have a, a love for music, or maybe it's, maybe it's cooking, or maybe it's camping. Some of you don't camp anymore. You glamp. And that is not camping. Can I just say that? Camping is when you don't shower for long stretches of time and you eat pork and beans out of a can. Okay? Let's go camping, right? No, no, no. Maybe for some of you, it is an heirloom that's been passed down for generations. We don't have any heirlooms, but my dad made a kneeler for me. And I have it in my office and it's a visual reminder to me of my dad's handiwork and my dad's giftedness. And one of the things that he passed on to me was that kind of that memory of who he is. We're in a series called Generations, and we've been spending time talking about something that's incredibly important to pass on to the next generation. We've said that the future of the church is dependent not on just this next generation that's here, this young generation, but the future of the church is dependent upon all generations from the great generation all the way down to generations, all of us working together. And we said what one generation passes on to the next generation is, is the baton of faith. And we are here today because there were faithful individuals in the past who ran the race and they passed on the baton to us. We've been using a passage of scripture as kind of a, a key text uh, Psalm 145, 3 through 4, we're going to read it each week. Let's read it out loud again together, whether you're in the chapel, whether you're at home, you're here in the worship center, let's read it out loud. The Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and proclaim your mighty acts. So how does a person go about making sure that the faith is 
declared from one generation to the next. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the biblical pattern of how the faith has been passed down. And we're going to spend some time looking at an often neglected letter in the Bible. Some of you maybe have never read it before because it is so tiny and it's so tucked in toward the end of the Bible. It's the letter of Jude. Jude was probably the half-brother of Jesus. And his singular message was this. If you're going to pass on the baton of faith, you have to contend for the faith. You have to contend for the faith. So real simple message today. We're going to take that one phrase, say it with me, contend for the faith. Say it, contend for the faith. And we're just going to look at it. We're going to emphasize some different words. And hopefully what we will grasp from this is the importance of actually contending for the faith. It's been said, I've said it several times, I'll say it more times throughout this entire message. It has been suggested that Christianity is always one generation away from extinction. And on the one hand, that is false, and on the other hand, it's true. I do believe in God's providence and God's sovereignty. His church is going to prevail But I also know that it's important for us to make sure that we're doing our part in the Spirit's power to make sure that our generation is not the one who fails to pass the baton on or our generation is not the one that fails to receive the baton. And all of that is important and all of that is tied in this whole idea of contending for the faith. We're going to look at two verses in Jude. It's a little tiny letter. But we're going to look at the first two verses that really set up the purpose of the entire letter. So if you have your Bible, go to the letter of Jude. And this is what it says, only one chapter long. Dear friends, now he's speaking to Christians. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to all the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Master. So are you ready? Okay, here we go. Contend for the faith, and so we're just going to look at that phrase. What does it mean to contend for the faith? So that's what we're going to focus on to start with. If we're going to contend for the faith, we have to know what the faith is. If somebody were to ask you, can you tell me what the faith is, could you describe for them the faith that has been delivered to us from the generations that have gone before us and in some way encapsulate the 66 books of the Bible because that's what has been handed down to us. So here is a thought. We're to contend for the faith because it is a definite faith. It's a definite faith. What do I mean? Our faith is not a nebulous thing that nobody can pin down. It's not like, well, you Christians, like we never can figure out what you Christians believe. No, it's really clear what we believe. It's been handed down 
through the generations. It is a definite body of belief. It's not a message that continues to evolve that can mean anything that any generation wants it to mean. It is comprehensive in its completeness and finality. Our faith has borders to it. Our faith has guardrails. Our faith has boundaries. There is a theological core to Christianity that is worth protecting. If we lose that, then we lose what it means to actually believe. I've been reading a book called How Not to Read the Bible. And one of the things that Dan Kimball says in this particular book, and the reason that it appealed to me is because he deals with some crazy things that are in the Bible that because we don't understand the whole of the Bible, we might misunderstand. For instance, he takes on the idea of uh, what do you say to people who say that there are unicorns in the Bible? Exactly what that baby just said right over there. He's like... I don't know. What would you say to them? Did you know that there are unicorns in the Bible? Don't look at me like that. This is a whole nother, it's a whole nother sermon. And if you want to ask me about that later, we'll do that. I just, I, I tried to spark your interest a little bit and keep you with me. I'm not going to talk about it in this message. Okay. In his book, <laughs> in his book, what Dan Kimball does is he comes up with this great visual graphic that is the storyline of the Bible that encapsulates in six acts what the Bible is all about in all of these 66 books. And so what we're going to do is uh, when you came in, hopefully you got a bulletin. If you've got a bulletin, will you hold it up for me? If you will look on the back side of the bulletin, what I'm going to simply do is I'm going to walk through that graphic with you. And this is the reason I'm doing it. My hope is that you will keep this. And you will use this as a tool if you are a parent to make sure that you are able to explain to your children the storyline of the Bible. You're able to take this and say, this is what the faith is about. I want to hand on to you what has been handed down to us. And if you're in a discipling relationship with anybody else, this is a great tool to use. And so let's just jump right in. So the graphic's going to come up here. I'm going to spend some time right here in front of this. I'm going to point to it. I'm going to explain it. Here we go. Act number one is the act that God creates. And so if you go to the very first book of the Bible, the faith that was once delivered to us was a faith that had its beginning with a creator God. God created everything that is. And when God originally created it, he created it to be harmonious. He created it to be in union with him. He created us to be in union with one another. He created this beautiful, wonderful, well-ordered world. God created the sexes. He created them male, and he created them female, and he put them in a sacred space known as the garden. That's what this earth resembles here. It represents the garden. It was a place, a sacred place, a sacred space, and God says, listen, I want you to have children. I want you to multiply, and I want you to manage what I have placed you in as if you were managing it for me, and what was going on right now in this act is that God was dwelling with his people. There was no separation. There was no distance. And 
The way that Moses captures it in Genesis is it would be like God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the evening. There was a kind of intimacy that was there. Then you get to act number two, and that is the act where humans rebel. God asked human beings to simply do this. I want you to live within my boundaries, and my boundaries are this. You've got an entirely huge playground that is so good, and you can flourish in. I've just got one thing that is not for you. Stay away from it, and your life will be good. And so faced with the tasks that they had, human beings had all kinds of choices to make. Do they make the choice to do what God told them to do and live within his life-giving boundaries or not. And then we're introduced to this mysterious creature called the serpent. Later in the Bible, the serpent is identified as Satan. And what does Satan do? Satan tempts and entices human beings not to trust God, not to do what God says. And his promise ends up in destruction. We call this rebellion the fall of mankind. This is where sin entered into the world, and it infects the world. And one of the things that you're going to see from Acts 2 all the way through humanity's experience until the day when God establishes a new heaven and a new earth, these dots represent the fallout of sin. It's like sin was a nuclear explosion. And the fallout has had impact and has impact and is still having impact. Evil becomes so prevalent, what does God have to do? God says, I'm going to have to start things all over again. And so God saves some representative humanity and representative uh, animals. And he starts all over again after he brings about judgment. But it wasn't too long after God started all things over again that human beings continued to do what they did back in the beginning and that they continue to rebel against God. And so what does God do? God disperses the people at the Tower of Babel and he establishes this plan that he's going to bring his people back to himself. And that gets us to act number three. This is where redemption is initiated. God says there is this one man, this one individual and his family out of all of the nations among people that I choose to be my representative, that I'm going to bring about redemption to all of humanity. I'm going to bring about a healing of all the damage that has been done because of sin. So God chooses Abraham, and God intends that I'm going to bless the entire world through Abraham. And so what does God do? God raises up some individuals in the lineage of Abraham who are his key people. He brought up a guy by the name of Moses, whose job was to be a deliverer of the people of God out of their bondage in Egypt, and through Moses established all kinds of rules and regulations to help God's people know how to live uniquely in the world as a representative of him. People of 
God, the Israelites continue to struggle in following God, and there is this pattern of we trust God, we don't trust God, we rebel against God, God brings judgment, and then God brings about comfort and healing. God brings along a guy by the name of Moses, then he brings along this great king by the name of David to guide and to follow his people. But again, the impact of sin continues to reign in the lives of these individuals. They go into exile, the people of God. Because of their rebellion against God, God sends them into exile in Babylon. This is a judgment against them. And then he sends these individuals, his spokesmen, known as prophets. And the prophets are doing this. Come back home. Repent of your sin. Come back to God. And if you will, God will have mercy on you. And then we come to the end of the First Testament, the end of the Old Testament. And there is this interlude. 400 years of silence, if you will, between Malachi and Matthew, the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. God was at work during this 400-year period of time. There were actually some books that were written during that period of time, but they were not considered inspired scriptures, so they're not included in our Bible. But we get through the interlude moving into Act number 4. Act number four is where redemption is provided, and this is the coming of Jesus. If you were to take your Bible and you were to set it right here in the middle of this six-act play, what you would have is Old Testament here, New Testament there. So here he is, Jesus of Nazareth, Emmanuel, God with us, the one the prophets spoke of, the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David, the long-awaited chosen one who God was sending to redeem his people, to set them free, to establish God's rule and God's reign. God sent Christ. But Jesus doesn't do and show up the way the people in the Old Testament were expecting. He doesn't establish a military kingdom. He doesn't establish a political kingdom. He's come to establish a kingdom that is in the human heart. Where God, what God wants done is being done. And so he lives a life that is countercultural. He lives a life that is sinless and totally devoted to God. He is not only a savior of the world, but he's a model of what it means to be a human. Jesus predicted that he would be put to death. And his death would not be a martyr's death. His death would be a savior's death. He came to deliver us from our sin and deliver us into life with God. His life was a sacrifice in our place on our behalf so that whoever puts their faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus did, they experience new life with God. They experience the forgiveness of sin. Jesus predicted that he was going to die. Jesus did die. Jesus predicted that on the third day he was going to raise to life again. And Jesus did come back just as he said. But notice that sin is continuing to have its impact. Just because Jesus came didn't mean that sin was completely eradicated at that moment. But the provision was made available for us. You get to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, and that is the mission to the nations. After Jesus' resurrection, 
He spent 40 days with his followers, and he taught them, and then they experienced the empowering of the third person of the eternal God. The Spirit of God came to dwell in believers, and living in us, he has given us the power to do what God says, and he's given us a mission to tell others about Christ and the coming of the kingdom. And so what happens is these first followers, empowered by the Spirit, began to go around the world of their day and establish little churches. Those became the places where there was fellowship, there was discipleship, there was worship that took place, there was care that took place. And so the mission to all of the nations continues on because the fallout of sin is still present. And the church looks forward to the day of Acts 6 when redemption is completed. Jesus said that there are going to be some difficult times. You're going to go through some hard times. These are the end times, but the day is coming where I am going to complete what I started. God will once again dwell with his people like he did in Eden. He will establish a new heaven and a new earth. And this new heaven and new earth will know no separation of races and ethnicities. It will know no presence of sin, no sickness, no sorrow. This God is going to come and establish once again like Eden on earth. This is the faith that has been delivered to us that is a definite faith that is at the core of who we are, that we have the responsibility to pass it on to other individuals. And now that you have been given a graphic, there's no reason in the world that you can't. Right? I've just given you in a very short version just a high-level overview of what the Bible is all about. That's what we have as a privilege to make sure that we contend for. Contend for the faith because it is a definite faith. Contend for the faith because it is a delivered faith. It's a delivered faith. Look again at verse 3. Contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. The word deliver means hand over. It's been handed over. We've been using the metaphor of running a relay and handing off the baton. Our faith has been delivered to us. And the way that the faith has been delivered to us is the way that we will deliver it to others. We will discuss it and talk about it in normal conversations of life. We will be involved in the formal teaching of the faith, and we will model the faith for others so that they know that it is not just something that we believe, but it impacts how we go about behaving. This is what Paul said to Timothy. This has been the course of, of your life. Look at 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy 1.13. He says, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me. How does the faith get delivered? It is passed on. It is heard. Somebody teaches it that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. If you go to the third chapter, he says, but you have followed my teaching. 
Timothy, I have delivered to you the teaching. I've delivered to you the faith. But not only that, you followed my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. So it's not just the faith that we teach and the faith that we believe, but it's the faith that we model and that we live. And the endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. It's been handed off to you. Continue in it. You know the ones who taught you. Paul taught them, but he says, let's go all the way back. Basically, the ones that taught him were his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. He says, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures. Why is passing on the faith important? Here's the reason passing on the faith is important. You have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If we don't pass on the faith, how will the next generation know how to be made right with God? And then he says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. That's the reason it's important for us to deliver the faith on to the next generation. We want them to know how to be made right with God. We want them to know how to live rightly in this world. We want them to be able to discern falsehood from truth. Some versions of the Bible where it says the word delivered use the word entrusted. And I like that phrase. It says, Contend for the faith that was entrusted to the saints once and for all. When something has been entrusted to another person, they're saying, I'm giving it to you to manage and steward well. Now, if you were to come to me and you would have just bought a slab of ribs and you said, I want to entrust you with my slab of ribs while I go and uh, do this thing, that's risky. Because what you want me to do is you want me to, to protect it. You want to make sure that I don't do something with it that you wouldn't want done to it. God has entrusted us with something greater than a slab of ribs. He's entrusted us with the faith once delivered for all that's able to make us wise to salvation that leads us in the pathway of life. And he says, I've entrusted it to you. It's mine but I've given it to you. I've entrusted it to you to make sure that you entrust it to the next generation without it being distorted in its truth and without its power being diluted. Here's a great example that you're getting ready to see on video. Marla Christman, who works in our student ministry, did a Zoom call with three young individuals, young adults who came through the ministry of our church who had the faith delivered to them, and they're doing some amazing things in terms of leading other churches around the country. So let's take a look and a listen to what Marla discovered from this group.
There are a lot of students who have stepped on this carpet over the years who have made significant steps to following Jesus. And one of the things I'd want you to know is that we have raised up a lot of gifted leaders through the ministry of uh, middle school and high school. And I want you to envision for a minute these folks not being world changers someday in the future, but they're doing it right now. I could take you to a number of folks that are actually on our staff right now who came through our student ministry that are young champions. I could point you to other churches who have benefited from the ministry of Pleasant Valley where we have seen people step into significant places of ministry. Every dollar that we invest in the life of our students is a dollar well spent because it's not just for us, it's for the generations to come. Well, hey guys, it is so fun to be with all of you here today. I actually am coming up on 10 years of being on student ministry staff. I've had the privilege to watch all three of you go through student ministry and then got to watch you grow up, serve in your local communities, which is what you're what you're all doing today. That's kind of what we want to hear a little bit about and want you to share. My name is Shannon Jones and I am in Cleveland, Ohio at a church called Christ Community Chapel. And I was in student ministry at PV from 2007 to 2013. My um, ministry experience and call happened at PV. I had people that surrounded me and they looked to me and they said, Shannon, I think I see something greater. I think there might be something that God wants to do. And they challenged me when it wasn't easy. I often wanted to push back and be like, no, leading a group of sixth grade girls kind of sounds really hard and like the worst. And maybe I don't want to do that. But it was through that time with those girls and with the leaders around me encouraging me that the Lord really used that to solidify the call on my life, that ministry is what he wants me to be doing. Uh, my name is Ryan Chrisman, and I am the Communications Director at Northway Church in Dallas, Texas. I was in PV student ministry from around 2008 to 2014. I was actually working in the secular workforce at a branding agency um, out of college, and then a position came available at the church that I um, attend and now work at, and um, so I kind of took the skills that I was using um, at my creative agency and started doing those here at my church. My name is Brad Doherty, and I am uh, one of the pastors at New Beginnings Baptist Church, which is in East Texas. And uh, I was a part of Pleasant Valley Student Ministry from 2000-ish to 2008. I got the privilege of serving uh, at PV in the student ministry, and I think it was the experiences that I had at Pleasant Valley that led me to my call. There is no question in my mind that Pleasant Valley was completely um, formative in uh, helping me to realize the call that God had placed on my life. Who do you remember at PV that was a constant presence in your life through those formative years? My answer to that would be Brad and Stacy Daniel. The two of them together, Brad um, really encouraging me in my um, call in ministry and Stacy specifically, um, she was my small group leader. Even today, I am oh, eight years out of high school now and she will text me weekly and just check in. So just that, um, level of care is something that I learned that I want to exemplify to those that I am leading and caring for. Jared and Brittany Kingston, they were, for most of high school, they were our group leaders. And something that I think back on often is just 
just like the words like ordinary faithfulness. To us, they were this young married couple and they were just taking time every Sunday night to, to meet with us and to invite us into their homes. And I can't tell you one lesson that they taught. I can't tell you one one thing that like, oh, this is wisdom to change my life. But I remember every week just going and sitting under them and pouring into us and just the ordinary faithfulness that they showed. Brad began a group of uh, guys when I was in ninth grade. At that point, he was not the, the student pastor at the time, and he just invested in us uh, over time, and there's definite fruit from that because the guys that were in that group were me, were Adam Kuntz, who's a student pastor, Clayton Small, who's in ministry also, Austin Hay, who is at PV now, which is exciting. I can't emphasize enough the impact um, that those everyday moments, as well as the big stuff, I have been impactful in my life. My encouragement to anyone would be, uh, use the opportunity that you have being a part of a church like Pleasant Valley to make disciples in and through the ministries um, at Pleasant Valley, because what an unbelievable place to make disciples. Yeah. So there were individuals in their life who contended for the faith, and they passed the faith on to them, both modeling it as well as teaching it. So we talked about contend for the faith. Now let's look at the second part quickly. We are to contend for the faith. The word contend, the best way that I can, I can say to describe contend is um, I grew up uh, watching wrestling. Did any of you watch wrestling? Not wrestling, not the Olympic sport of wrestling. I'm talking about the professional sport <laughs> of wrestling. And so some of you are old enough to remember, you know, Gorgeous George Jr. And some of you are younger and you think about, uh, I don't know who wrestles now. I have no idea. It's been so long since I've watched it. But whenever I think about contending, I think about those big sweaty guys in the middle of a ring just like wailing on each other and flipping each other and, and uh, really being very vigorous in their faking of what they were doing. <laughs> I mean, the word contend has the idea of struggle. It has the idea of you put all the effort that you can into it. You fight for a desired result. You're moving towards a desired end. It's a strong word. As Christians, we delight in the gospel, don't we? Yeah, we delight in the gospel. It's more than just delighting in the gospel. We, we don't even delight in the gospel and like sort of put up with getting the gospel a little bit muddled and confused here and there. No, we are called to put all of our energies into struggling for and contending for the gospel, both offensively and defensively. Paul said to, to Timothy, guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Timothy had received the gospel. Paul says, I want you to guard it. I want you to make sure that you know how precious it is and how easily it can be distorted. We're to contend for the faith because there, there is trouble that has existed in the church. And I'm not talking about specific trouble that's happening in Pleasant Valley right now. I'm talking about trouble that's existed in the church with the capital C. Look again at Jude, verse 4. 
Some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. What was going on, there were these itinerant false teachers who had slipped into the church. They rejected all moral authority. They weren't out there teaching false doctrines. They had wormed their way into the church, and they were perverting the grace of God, and somehow they were denying who Jesus was, and they were encouraging people to live however you want to live, even if it was immoral in your behavior. Now, many today in the church argue that we need to rethink the biblical teaching on sexuality. And we need to divert from what has been handed down through the generations. So it's present still in the life of the church. But you need to know this. What you and I believe will affect our behavior. And if our beliefs are wrong, what's going to happen is it affects every area of our life. Sometimes the church is well-meaning. And it isn't that it intentionally distorts the truth. It just gets distracted from the truth. It gets distracted by focusing on peripheral issues. Have any of you ever witnessed that? Or do you know that it's happening today? Dr. Paul Hybert analyzed his own denomination at the time he was of the Mennonite denomination, and this is what he observed. And this is an example. This is me picking on the Mennonites. This is me showing you an example from somebody who was within that denomination he observed that in one generation, the Mennonites, one generation, the Mennonites believed the gospel and held as well that there were certain kinds of social and economic and political byproducts or ramifications of believing the gospel. The next generation assumed the gospel, but identified with the byproducts more than the gospel. And then a following generation actually denied the gospel and the byproducts, the ramifications of the gospel became everything to them to the point that they actually didn't have anything to do with the gospel whatsoever. Let me see if I can put it in the form that we get. What is it in the Christian faith that excites you? What is it in the Christian faith that really makes you want to pound the table with passion and emotion? Today, there are endless subgroups of confessing Christians who invest enormous quality, quantities of time and energy in one issue or another, whether it is a political agenda or social judgment, uh, justice or dogmatic end time interpretations or a certain style of worship. And I'm not saying that those things aren't important and that we shouldn't give ourselves interest and put some weight behind them. But when those matters devour most of our time and most of our passion, each of us has to ask this question, in what fashion am I contending for the certainty of the gospel? Or have I been caught up in some kind of byproduct and I'm no longer contending for the faith? We're to contend for the faith because there are 
there's trouble within the life of the church and obviously because there's trouble in the world. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time speaking on this. Just listen to this text. Paul writes to Timothy, but you know this, hard times will come in the last days. Amen? He goes on to say this, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unloving, unholy, irreconcilable, slanderers, without, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good. Traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people, contending for the faith, fighting for the faith, struggling for the faith, defending the faith is important because we live in a world that is in direct opposition to the faith that has been delivered to us once and for all. So we need to be not only on the offensive in knowing what we believe and why we believe and transmitting that to the next generation, showing them why it is a better way to live, reminding them that we have nothing to be ashamed of when it comes to the gospel. If you are a follower of Jesus, never bow your head in shame, never, never drop your shoulders and slink away as if your worldview is somehow second rate. It is not second rate at all. I can't think of a better worldview than the one that we have in the arena of worldviews in the marketplace of ideas. I am not ashamed of the gospel. A defensive strategy is that we have to make sure and pass on what not to believe as well. There was a retired pastor who began noticing that a formal congregation of his began to slip away into um, heresy, slip away from orthodoxy. And the pastor, retired pastor, looked back on his tenure there and he said, I think this was my fault because there was something that I did poorly. And this is what he said. In two sentences, his greatest failure, I always told people what to believe. My greatest mistake is that I never clearly taught my people what not to believe. Part of contending for the faith is knowing what we believe and why. And knowing what we don't believe and why we don't believe it. The gospel has been described as a pool that is a place where a toddler can wade and an elephant can swim. The gospel is simple enough to tell a child and profound enough for the greatest minds to explore. The Bible says that even angels long to look in it and they never tire of looking in the faith. We have a faith that has been delivered. Let's delight in it and let's contend for it. Amen.